Father, we pray now that you would open our eyes, shine your light into our lives so we can see uh, what it means to follow Jesus as you show us here in Ephesians chapter 5. May we understand that for ourselves, for our own lives, for the world around us. May it be for your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Among the stories of sacrifice and heroism from a hundred years ago is the story of singing Jim. At the beginning of the story, he's not singing Jim, he's just Jim. And Jim was a regular British soldier in the trenches who one day was given a copy of the New Testament by, uh, which was provided by a charity called Scripture Gift Mission. And Scripture Gift Mission provided over 43 million Gospels and New Testaments for the troops, the British troops in the, during the First World War. Uh, many threw their Gospel or New Testament away as soon as they received it. But Jim was different. Despite never having previously engaged with the Christian faith in any meaningful way, uh, Jim had time on his hands and he read and he reread his New Testament. And the words sunk in and he came to a personal faith in Jesus. And in the back of the Scripture Gift Missions edition of the New Testament, they had printed a number of well-known hymns. And fired by his newfound faith in Jesus, Jim sang the hymns to himself and he became known up and down the trenches as Singing Jim. Then during a reconnaissance mission, a young soldier from Jim's company was wounded out in no man's land. Singing Jim volunteered to go and bring him back. He reached the man under cover of darkness and began crawling home with his friend on his back. Then a flare burst overhead, revealing their position. A single sniper shot rang out and Singing Jim was killed. In his pocket was a long letter to his wife about how he had come to know Christ and encouraging her to do the same. And the wounded man offered to take it to England and deliver it in person, telling her how her husband had laid down his life for him. And he was given the letter and he did indeed deliver it. But his company had one further request. While he was in England, could he pick up some copies of the book Singing Jim had been reading. It's a great story, and it reminds us that stories of sacrifice are great motivators for action. But is every sacrifice worth it? In Buckinghamshire, overlooking the Prime Minister's residence, Chequers, there's a hill called Coombe Hill. And at the top of that hill, there's a great monument, which you can see from miles around. It's a monument to the Second Boer War at the turn of the 19th, 20th century. And on it, alongside the names of the dead, is written, presumably without irony, Dulce et decorum est pro patria mori. It is a sweet and proper thing to die for your country. Now that was from around 1902. And as you will know, Wilfred Owen famously took those words... And he used them to frame his poem that he wrote about the brutal, horrific reality of life 
in the trenches, implying it was anything but sweet and proper to die in this way. And he himself, of course, died one week before Armistice Day in 1918. Is every sacrifice worth it? Christians today are called to be motivated supremely by another sacrifice, by the sacrifice of Jesus. Was it in vain? Because actually, does Jesus' death really change anything? You know, you think of a mother receiving the news during the First World War that her son had died, and you think, well, was there really any point to that? And can, does Jesus' death, is that just another death along the same lines, another death in vain of someone who had such great hope but is killed at the age of maybe whatever it was, 33? Can Jesus' death make a difference? Can it motivate us to live differently? Well, according to Paul in this letter to the Ephesians that we've been looking at for the last couple of months, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is the single driving motivator of everything in the Christian life. Both our relationship with God, our Father in heaven, and our relationships with one another. And the church is called to be a scale model of the future, living out what will one day be true for all people and all things, united under one head, Jesus. Through his death, he has broken down the barriers between us and God, and he's broken down the barriers between us and one another. Now, what does that life look like in practice, this life motivated by his sacrificial death? That is the subject of chapters 4 to 6. Last time, in the second half of chapter 4, the focus was primarily on relationships within the church. Now, in the first half of chapter 5, the focus is primarily on relationships with the world around us. A world we are, you know, we're reminded, especially today of all days, that is broken, just as we are broken. A world that needs to be redeemed, just as if we are trusting in Jesus today, we have been redeemed. In every generation, Christians have to ask afresh, what does it mean to live distinctively in the world? What does it mean to, to be in the world, but not of it? In what way should we be like the world in order to win the world? And in what way should we be unlike the world in order to avoid blending in to the point of losing any distinctiveness at all? Well, there are three things to see in these verses. Jesus' sacrifice motivates us as people loved by Christ to live lives, firstly, of thankful love. Verses 1 to 7. Verses 1 and 2 give us the headline. If you look at that on page 1176, Paul says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then as we think, okay then, well, you know, that's great, a life of love sounds positive. What does that look like? Well, Paul then highlights three areas where we need to live this life of love. And they may be slightly surprising to us. What does he highlight? He highlights our attitude to people in terms of our sexual morality and our speech. 
And he highlights our attitude to stuff, to possessions, in terms of our greed. Now, as soon as we hear the Bible speak about sexual morality, I guess many people groan a little bit inwardly. Now, here we go again. Why does the Bible go on about sex? Well, I don't think it does, actually, but we'll see more of this next time. But one of the reasons the Bible is concerned with the right context for sexual relationships is because sex itself is a picture of God's faithful, intimate love for his people. So we've been seeing in Ephesians that the church is a scale model of the future, of the new heavens and the new earth. And actually, what we see in chapter 5, and we'll see this again next week, is marriage is also not an end in itself, like church isn't an end in itself. Actually, marriage is pointing away from itself to something else. It's a scale model of something else. It's a scale model of God's relationship with his people. And it's interesting to put this in the context of what it looks like to live a life of love, which is what Paul is talking about here, isn't it? Because many people in the wider world would say, well, this is exactly the problem, Christians. You're too restrictive. And surely sex is all about love. And as long as two people love each other, well, what's the problem? You know, you talk about living a life of love, but where's the love when you insist that sex is only for marriage between a man and a woman, you Christians, people might say. Now, there's a real and deep challenge here. And we should note that this isn't just a challenge, as is sometimes assumed, particularly in, in, our, in our world today, that this is somehow a challenge only for people, perhaps, who would identify as gay or same-sex attracted, for example. Actually, it's a challenge for anybody who would love to be married but isn't. Uh, It's a challenge uh, even for someone who is married but finds out that marriage isn't quite the fairy tale they thought it was going to be. And yet they've made some promises. It's a challenge for all kinds of different people. And it may be something which is a challenge for us right here, right now, today. To see when we see the Bible's standards on, on sexual morality. It's important to see that we are at odds with our culture on all those fronts, not just one or two, not just singling out one particular type of person, but actually this touches all of us in different ways, whatever our marital status, whatever our sexual preference. But the reason it matters ultimately is because this is about living a life of love. This isn't just the Bible kind of, or God kind of saying, here's a list of rules, guys, arbitrary rules. Now, this is about acting out the love that God has for his people. And actually that means that, that when we live a life of love, that doesn't mean a love that is defined, you know, for example, on how we feel, which is what the world would say, I guess. But living a life of love is living out the way that God loves us. Do you see? That means living out a life of faithfulness, a life of promise-keeping. Which is why the Bible again and again holds out the right context for God's precious gift of sex as in a marriage between a man and a woman because of the commitment of faithfulness. But there are a couple of uh, striking things in what Paul says here. One is that uh, sexual morality is put alongside other things that we maybe are tempted to be less fussy about how we speak. 
whether we are greedy. Do you see that in verses 3 to 5? Sexual morality, impurity, greed, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. Paul is saying, well, don't, don't single out sexual sin as somehow more serious than how we speak. And he's saying, if you're happily married, but, you know, like the rich fool in Jesus' parable, you're busily storing up grain in your barns and, and building bigger barns because the original barns aren't big enough to store your grain, he's saying, don't be fooled. Living for money, living for stuff, as if all that, as if that's all that matters, that's just as serious. And taken to its extreme, do you see this in verse 5? Do you see what he says? Any of these things is enough to keep you out of the kingdom of God. And then also, what does he say, verse 3, about these things? Well, is he saying something like this? Is he saying, well, you know, obviously we all acknowledge that a little bit of sexual impurity, a little bit of pornography, a little bit of greed in regard to money, a little bit of, of that kind of thing is just par for the course. As long as you're not ridiculous about it. Well, he's not saying that, is he? What, what, what does he say? What does he say? Look at that, verse 3. He says, not even a hint. Wow, not even a hint. See, so often in our approach to holiness and godliness, our standard is a, a relative one. We just compare ourselves to people around us. So we're like the story of two hikers out in the woods, maybe in somewhere like Canada, uh, proper wilderness, in other words, not, um, not Hampstead Heath. And suddenly they come across a bear. And the bear makes eye contact with them and he starts running towards them from 100 metres away. And one of the guys immediately starts running and then he turns around and sees his friend has stopped and quick as a flash he's taken off his big hiking boots and he's pulled out a pair of running shoes from his rucksack and he's put them on and his friend says, are you mad? Do you think you can outrun a bear? And he says, I don't need to outrun the bear. I only need to outrun you. Well, that is how we are so often with godliness, with holiness. We think, well, okay, there is that perfect standard, but as lo- I'm, I'm doing better than him, I think. And I'm not doing what she's doing, so I'm basically okay, relatively speaking. But the Apostle Paul, speaking with the authority of Jesus, says, not even a hint. Take radical action, he's saying. Why is that? Well, he says it twice. Do you see verse 3 and 4? Why is it? Why not even a hint? He says, it is improper. It is out of place for God's holy people. This is like being out in the middle of the ocean, drowning because you can't swim. I don't know if you've seen one of those sort of disaster movie, or you know, horror sort of movies, where you're out in the middle of the ocean, the boat's gone, and you're like, oh, I'm going to drown. And then, miraculously, a rescue boat comes along. And amazingly, you're rescued dragged out of the ocean, back onto the boat. You're heading for dry land, and you're on the boat, and you turn to the rescuer and you say, is it okay if I just jump back in the ocean again? Just, just, just for a few minutes, because maybe I think it might be different this time. And the lifeguard says, are you crazy? I've just rescued you from the ocean. I've just saved you, and you want to go back in? Just, you know, just for a minute or two? No. Not even a hint. It's out of place. Do you see the, do you see the point? 
Do you see how it's the same with how we relate to each other and to our possessions? And you know, because we think, you know, can't I be a little bit like my neighbours? You know, trying to—they're having a perfectly nice life in, in, you know, living the North London life without reference to God. Well, he says, no, don't be deceived. Verse six. See, there'll be plenty of people who think it's absolutely fine to live how you like, and they'll try and persuade you of that. The media, the talking heads on TV, the colleagues over a drink. No, but if you're a Christian who's trusting in Jesus' sacrificial death for you, living a life of love will mean taking radical action on sin. Maybe there's something you need help with. You need to talk to someone about. Do it today. But it's a bit like being told not to think about pink elephants. So if, I, if I say don't think about pink elephants, what are you thinking about? I think you're probably thinking about pink elephants. But if I say instead of thinking about pink elephants, think about orange polar bears, that's an entirely different thing, isn't it? Because orange polar bears, hang on a minute, is that, is that a thing? What, uh, what would that look like? And Paul is the same, you see. see, He's saying, you know, what are we to fill our minds and hearts with if not with impurity and greed? And the answer in verse 4, if you look, just slipped in there at the end. Thanksgiving. A life of love flows from thanksgiving for what God has given us in Christ. We heard about thanksgiving when we looked at Ecclesiastes on our weekend away a few weeks ago. And if you've not listened to those talks, do, do get hold of them on the website and have a listen. I know a lot of people were helped by that and it encouraged them to approach life differently. Because if you're thankful for what God has given you in Christ and thankful for what he's given you today, it's very difficult to moan and to complain, to feel sorry for yourself, to start down the road of just of thinking, you know, just a little bit of looking after number one, never hurt anyone. We do that when we feel sorry for ourselves and that's when we end up falling into sin. And Paul says, no, not even a hint. Instead, be thankful. What are we thankful for today? Well, there are so many things for Christians to thank God for. For Jesus, for the gospel of sins forgiven through his sacrifice. For the sacrifice of those who've given their lives in the cause of peace. For our livelihoods, for our friends and loved ones. Even if you feel like you're going through a hard time, it's worth taking, a char- taking some time to, to think, what are the blessings even right here in the midst of this pain, as difficult as that can be? All these things are all of grace. Get into the discipline of beginning and the day and ending the day with, with thankfulness. And when we do that, we will find ourselves more able to say no to sin, to impurity, to greed, because our hearts will be saying, isn't God good? And when our hearts are captured and our hearts are saying, God is good and I'm so grateful and thankful, why would I want to go against him? Why would I want to dabble with the life that I've been rescued from? That's the point. So live lives of thankful love. And then secondly, in verses 8 to 14, lives lives of shining light. 
For you were once darkness, he says, verse 8, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. What are children of light? Well, they are, he describes it in the following verses, they are those who find out what pleases the Lord, verse 10. Those who have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And there's a double sense of light here. One is that we are people on whom the light of Jesus has shone. And the other is that we ourselves are light who shine on others, if we're Christians. So the Christians in Ephesus had previously been part of the darkness of their city. You know, we think of its temple dedicated to Artemis and all the pagan worship associated with that. But now they've been rescued out of that and they are children of light. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean they withdraw from the world around them? You know, they start a monastery, they retreat to a Christian subcultural ghetto where their only friends and colleagues are Christians and there's no contact with anyone or anything outside of that in case it pollutes them. Look at verse 11. On the one hand, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Don't do what they do, in other words. But on the other hand, expose them. How do you expose the deeds of darkness? You expose them by being the light. So that can't mean totally withdrawing, no contact, but it does mean distinctive living that is different from the world around us. And then light will drive out darkness. That happens for us as we come to Jesus, the light, and he exposes the sin in our lives. And it happens for the, for the world around us if we live differently. So if you, are a, if you are a Christian and you can remember a time when you weren't a Christian, think about what changed. What or who caused you to take the Christian faith seriously? See, very often it comes down to the distinctive lives lived by a particular individual or group of people. Was that how it was for you? Be like that to others. There was a big significant survey um, carried out by Barna, the market research people, and it says that 67% of people in the UK have a Christian friend they like. 67% of people in the UK have a Christian friend they like. And that's that's quite an important stat to be aware of because very often you can feel on the back foot as Christians. You know, you're scared to be distinctive, scared to voice an opinion, scared to share our faith because we assume from the outset that it's going to be awful. And we can never say it won't be. It may be that we're the the Christian friend they don't like. (laughs) But two-thirds of people know someone who is a Christian and they view that person positively. Which surely means that in general, Christians are already doing something right. Well, praise God. And that may then lead to more of an openness than we might imagine to speaking about Christian things. Be light, be different. Do you know how it was for Daniel in Babylon in the Old Testament? There he is in a pagan culture, and he knows he needs to be distinctive. And it's almost as if he picks something that isn't in itself all that important. And he decides that he will not eat the food from the king's table. And when he prays, he will do it at the window so that people see. And you think, Daniel, you don't have to do that. You know, there's no law about eating the food. Is that, you know, you're you're free to eat it if you want to. And you could pray privately and you'd have an easier life. But he wants to be distinctive. And he chooses those things as a way of doing that with all kinds of extraordinary results. What will living as children of light mean for you and for me on our 
streets, with our neighbours, with our colleagues. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible, Paul says. And that's true in that how we live exposes darkness around us if we're living distinctively, but it's also true in our own lives. As Jesus, the light shines on us. I was talking to someone this week about how very often in the Christian life we can get discouraged because it feels that as we go on that we're getting more sinful and not less sinful. Do you ever feel like that? But actually that is because we are growing closer to Jesus who is the light. And the closer you get to the light, the more that what was previously in darkness becomes clear. So whole aspects of our personalities and ways of doing things that we never thought were a problem before suddenly become things that Jesus is chipping away at by his word. And this highlights how following Jesus is a whole life thing. It's not just a Sunday thing, it's not just an intellectual head knowledge thing, it's a whole life thing. And it's about living for Jesus in everything we do, which is shaping our new vision for St John's that we talked about on Wednesday nights. Living for Jesus and sharing his good news. That is, that is acting this out, isn't it? Being light in dark world as his light shines on us and we in turn are light to the world around us. So wake up, he says, wake up, sleep, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. You're not part of the darkness anymore. Come to Jesus for his light. Be the light that shines on the world around you. Then thirdly, live lives of spirit-filled worship. Verses 15 to 21. The vision in these final verses is a whole life worship. Very often we think worship is just what you do on Sundays when you go to church. But look at what Paul says, verse 15. He says, be careful how you live. Be wise. And he spells it out in different ways. In the last verse, he talks about submitting to one another. And we'll see more about that next time in in the next passage. Uh, But before this, he says, make it your passion and desire not to be filled with wine, he says, but with the Holy Spirit. Now, is this just Paul the killjoy striking once again? You know, I'm not sure I want to be at one of your parties, Paul. Uh, But Paul is saying, well, actually, wine is one of those things that in itself is a good gift from God, but can easily be misused and abused in a way that results in debauchery. Now, I don't think Paul was a teetotal, I don't know for sure, but in his first letter to Timothy, he tells Paul um, to take a little wine, uh, sorry, he tells Timothy, rather, he tells Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach. And there are some Christians who have insisted that he must have meant Timothy was to apply the wine externally, as, uh, as if it might help with some skin complaint on his abdomen. Take a little wine for your stomach. But I don't think the point is that Paul is anti-wine. He's anti-idolatry. Do you see? Because wine can ruin lives. We know that. So can an addiction to power. So can an addiction to success, to ambition. Those are all good things in themselves. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be successful, to work as hard as you can, but... They can be twisted. They can become the be-all and end-all, the one thing I must have and I will sacrifice everything else. My relationships, my family, whatever it is, I will sacrifice it because I must have that one thing. 
Well, when that happens, that's an idol. Don't make it your ambition to be filled with those things, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And a few weeks ago, we saw back in chapter 1 how the Holy Spirit is like a spotlight. His role is to point to Jesus, who is the main actor on the stage. And when you go to the theatre, you don't spend your entire time staring at the spotlight. You stare at and you're meant to be enthralled by what the spotlight is illuminating. So when we're filled with God, the Holy Spirit, his job is to point us to Jesus, to make us more like Jesus. And that happens as we do what Paul describes in verses 19 to 21, as we speak and sing to each other. That's interesting, isn't it? What's the point of singing, singing according to Paul? Well, we sing in our hearts to the Lord, and we also speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And part of what we're doing then when we sing, therefore, is to encourage each other. We've seen in so many different ways in Ephesians that that being a Christian isn't just about me and God. And this is another example of that. We need each other. And just showing up when we meet together is an encouragement to one another as we sing and talk and pray with one another. Remember singing Jim. It was his singing in the trenches that inspired his fellow soldiers and made them ask what that book was that he'd read, and could they possibly read it too? Would people say that in response to what they know about our lives? Our testimony to Jesus in what we say and do? That is something to pray for ourselves. If you're not yet trusting in Jesus for yourself, I guess these verses in one sense are a peep over the fence into the neighbour's garden to see what's going on. This is the life that those who are trusting in Jesus are called to live. But it's not the life we live in order to make God accept us. It's the life we live in response to what he's done for us. That's how it started, wasn't it? Chapters 5, verses 1 and 2. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us. And that's what we want to keep coming back to as, as Christians. And we want to keep coming back to, to show one another how extraordinary it is that Jesus has come into the world, given himself up, died on the cross, risen from the dead, and called us to a new life. A life that is distinctive, a life that is light in a dark world. A life through which we are then called to be peacemakers and light and uh, to change the world around us. That's something that's open to any of us, and it starts with putting our trust in Jesus. But if we have done that, the question for us as we reflect on Jesus' sacrifice, are we going to live lives of thankful love, of shining light, of spirit-filled Worship in such a way that God can use us to reach a lost and hurting world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this vision of a life of love lived in response to your love for us. Please change us. 
Help us, if we're not yet doing so, to put our trust in Jesus, in his death for us. Thank you today for his sacrifice. Thank you that he, his death was not in vain, but that in his death we have peace, we have hope for ourselves and for our world. May we then reflect that in our lives, in our lives of love, in our lives of living for Jesus, being light in a dark world, living lives of worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.